pay people to learn, pay students starting in high school to do community service and other jobs to build skills and have money saved before they graduate. You could get money uh, until, uh, ba you know, based on your good GPAs and, and your attendance. Add two years to high school as an option to receive certificates or degrees for job placement, a non-college option. Again, still paid, so they get a lot of money to start out with. Uh, you could add two years of extra early education and pay the parents. The more involvement, the more money they receive. Uh, pay all college students. They still have to pay for their housing and their tuition, but they will be guaranteed a set amount of cash when they graduate. So they're not in debt. Um, but you have a surplus of money. Again, carrot and stick, motivation. Uh, pay people to go uh, to drug treatment. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm going to have to leave it there because uh, we are out of time. Um, Tracy, your thoughts before we sign off? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to tax people if we want to pay people, right? We've got, we've got to figure out this tax system. We've got to get money out of politics. Um, and, of course, because COVID is still going around and it's about to get real cold, please uh, mask, stay home if you're sick. Um, if, if you need to um, get a rapid test, they are still available at your local health department. Um, and check in on each other. Take care of yourself. Right. And we are out. Thank you for tuning in. This has been Too Much Information on KBOO. And we'll be back at you next week. Over me. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. In short, the period was very much like the present period. You're listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Hey, Michael here. I'm with the Tin Can Phone Podcast, a radio show where you can hear about the influence incarceration has straight from the source. We tell you the story from the inside out. So make sure to check us out on KBOO Community Radio every first Tuesday at 10 a.m. Slip a bookmark into your paperback and listen to KBOO for interviews with your favorite fiction and nonfiction writers. Between the Covers airs Thursdays from 11 to 11.30 a.m. here on KBOO 90.7 FM. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, the farmer is... Tune in to The Dirt Bag every second Wednesday of the month at 11 a.m. Learn to grow your tasty fruits and vegetables in your home garden. There is a monthly garden stumper, calendar of gardening events. You can even call in with your gardening questions. That's The Dirt Bag every second Wednesday, 11 to 12 a.m. That's on K-B-O-O Portland. Portland. Listen, Listen, laugh, learn. learn. The farmer is the man that feeds them all. Hi, this is Judy Collins, and you're listening to KBOO in Portland. Could we just stop the meanness? Could we stop the relentless persecution of people who are already having a hard time? Could we stop harassing the homeless and the indigent? You know, in a sense, to be homeless, to be indigent in America, you have entered the ranks, the ranks of a population very little different from undocumented workers. It's like you're not a citizen anymore. It's like you have no rights at all here. In other words, could we stop kicking people when they're down? That's Barbara Ehrenreich, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features a tribute to Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich was a renowned social critic, journalist, feminist, and author. She was born in Butte, Montana, and studied chemistry at Reed College in Oregon, and later received a PhD at Rockefeller University in New York. But she left a possible career in science and teaching 
to become a seasoned muckraker in the tradition of Ida B. Wells and Lincoln Steffens. She wrote many books. Her articles appeared in Ms., Mother Jones, and The Progressive. She wrote incisively and with compassion about working people and the hardships they endure. To write about the underclass, she went underground and took low-wage jobs such as hotel maid, cleaning houses, nursing home aid, and waitressing. Through her work, she made the invisible working poor visible. She was long active in the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. In 2012, she founded the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, seeking to place the crisis of poverty and economic insecurity at the center of the national political conversation. Her best-known book, Nickel and Dimed, a classic in social justice literature, has sold millions of copies. She passed away on September 1st, 2022. We begin with Barbara Ehrenreich's closing remarks at a talk she gave in Boulder, Colorado. She related her experiments surviving on a series of minimum wage jobs and why more of us need to be involved in supporting policies addressing economic inequality. The most pressing feminist issue facing us today is the fate of the post-welfare poor. Feminists are not just concerned with how many women senators and CEOs or PhDs or astronauts or rabbis there are. Very important. We're very interested in that. Want to see those numbers go up too. But there's another far more difficult and demanding way of gauging our progress as a sex. And that is not by looking at how the best educated and best prepared women are doing, but by looking at how the least advantaged of our sisters are doing. The very poor, those that do not have educations that open doors to professions in them. The Bible says it is by our treatment of the, quote, least amongst us that we will be judged. And finally, I want to say that I think there is a moral reason, a personal almost sort of moral reason, why everyone in the middle class or above or should take these issues very seriously and get involved on behalf of the post-welfare poor. And when I say morality, you know, I think for those guys, or all of them, morality is keeping your zipper zipped up. That's the end of it. There is no notion of a broader, and let me say even biblical sense of morality, which starts with your relationship to the disadvantaged and the discriminated against, to the poor. That's what I mean by morality. When poor single mothers had the option of remaining out of the labor force on welfare, then the middle and the upper middle class and the wealthy tended to view them with a lot of disgust and the racism and the sexism that went into that. The welfare poor were excoriated for their laziness, for their persistence in having babies when they shouldn't, their presumed addictions, but above all for their, quote, dependency. That was the sort of wedge word here. Here they were content to live off these, quote, government handouts instead of getting out there like everyone else and getting a job. That was the rhetoric, remember? Uh, they needed to get their act together. Uh, one of my favorite comments was by a policy wonk uh, in, in Washington, D.C., who emphasized the need to teach them to learn to wind an alarm clock uh, and to get, get out there and work. So now, now, though, interesting situation. The government has largely withdrawn those so-called handouts now the, over, you know, the growing majority of the poor, the overwhelming majority of the poor in general, are out there working at Walmart or Wendy's, and I would say the dependency has been reversed. It's our own dependency that we should worry about now. Our dependency, those of us who are in the middle class or above, on the underpaid labor of others, because that's what this is. When you are depending... <laughs> on others to do work for you and not earn enough to live on. When someone works for less than she can live on, when, for example, she goes hungry so that you can, you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, and I worked next to people who were hungry because they didn't have enough money, then that woman has made a great sacrifice for you. She's made you a gift of some part of her health 
and her life. The working poor, as they are now so approvingly termed, because they're all working, right, are, I would say, the major philanthropist of our society. They are the ones who give. They neglect their own children, not because they want to, but so that they can take care of the children of others in order to support their children. They live often in substandard housing so that other homes, like the homes that they might clean, will be shiny and perfect. And you could say, looking at the big picture, they endure privation so that inflation will be low and stock prices will be high. To be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor, a nameless benefactor to everyone else. One woman who I worked with as a waitress put it this way, and she was just talking about her whole life in these low-wage jobs, and she said, quote, you give and you give and you give. And that's stuck in my mind. Now, I personally don't think that dependency as an abstract concept is such a bad thing. I think it's part of the human condition, in fact. Those who are very old or very young or ill are dependent on other people. And I would say those who are ground down by economic circumstances ought also to be able to depend on the help of others. They should be able to make a moral claim on the rest of us. And I happen to believe we should respond to that moral claim. But what has happened in the name of welfare reform is that now we are exploiting people's difficulties. Uh, we've taken their poverty. We've taken their need to support their children as an excuse for exploiting them as underpaid labor. And I think this amounts to a shameful inversion of the natural dependencies that should exist among human beings. It should not be the strong and the more affluent exploiting those who are more needy, who have more responsibilities uh, for their own purposes. Now, I'll put it very strongly, and I wouldn't have seen it this strongly if I hadn't been in that journalistic experience of trying these low-wage jobs. Anyone who acquiesces to that exploitation should feel exactly the same thing that welfare recipients were always being told they ought to feel when they were on welfare, and that is shame. Shame at our own dependency. Now, shame is a terrible feeling. Fortunately, there is a way out of it. You can become an activist for social justice in your community and in your life now. The beneficiaries of low-wage work, you know, have this option. We can also get to work in a sort of a, an analogy to welfare reform and saying we will not put up with this exploitation of the people with the worst problems in order to make them low-paid labor for the rest of us. So i end with that. Get involved now. Thank you. I am so glad to be in Santa Fe. For, for me, uh, Santa Fe is like Mecca. I mean, it's like a very special holy place uh, because of your, your minimum wage. Uh, last week, <laughs> that's, that's what brought me here in 2007, the minimum wage campaign, and I know there are people here from it. I, I was <laughs> looking so much forward to coming here because last week I gave a talk at George Mason University in Virginia, and as usual in these situations, a student in the audience stood up in a Q&A and said that she had learned in her economics class that raising the minimum wage would cause widespread unemployment and, and economic ruin. Now, I hear this every time I speak on a campus, and I think that academic economics departments are dedicated to one proposition only, and that is teaching that the economic status quo is exactly fine, and it's perfect even for the poor. So I said to this uh, young woman, I said, will you come with me to Santa Fe next week? Come and see for yourself. I am not seeing boarded up businesses. I am not seeing a city brought to its knees by the raised minimum wage. Now, last time I came here, and right to this theater, in fact, I spoke, a little, I spoke entirely about my book, Nickel and Dimed. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm going to look back at that a little bit 
and also talk about things that I have been learning from much more recent research since the economic downturn. You know, my, my starting point for a lot of this, I will tell you, it's sort of the source of a lot of my motivation, is I get really, really upset whenever I hear someone speak disrespectfully about people in poverty, and maybe especially women in poverty. And I have personal reasons for that reaction. But, you know, in the 1990s, I was hearing a lot of that kind of disrespect, especially from politicians and pundits. There's something wrong with poor people. That was a theory, and in many quarters, it still is. Poor people have low IQs. We've had Charles Murray to point that out, as well as people of color having lower IQs, he pointed out. They have character defects. They make bad lifestyle decisions. Poor women are promiscuous. They are lazy. They have too many children. They don't bother to get married. They eat too many Doritos and drink too much Mountain Dew. That is pretty much, you know, been the official theory of poverty in America, which is if people are poor, they have nobody but to blame but themselves. You know, this works its way into policy all the time. For example, the original welfare reform bill, which was in 1996, a bill that ended welfare as we knew it, ended any kind of entitlement of poor single parents to any kind of government aid or to as an entitlement to government aid. So this bill provided in it originally $100 million for chastity training for low-income women. That's the theory. That's the theory, right? So imagine the scene, Bill Clinton <laughs> signing into law. You know, this provision for chastity training, not unfortunately for himself, but anyway. You know, and that amount went up as of, most recent amount, it was up to $400 million for training poor women to make them more marriageable. You know, a lot, you know, some of us ladies aren't married because we haven't tried. We really need the education. Uh, actually, I've tried it a number of times. And <laughs> uh, you know, it, it seemed to me that the problem had nothing to do with lifestyles or personal choices or that overwhelmingly it has nothing to do with those things. I started my, I guess, campaign um, on the living, my own personal crusade for the living wage just by reading my local newspaper, seeing what wages were being offered in the Help Wanted ads, and, and they very cleverly don't mention them usually, then turn to the apartment rental section and see what the rents are. And the, and the math did not look good to me. And I agonized about this so much and made, you know, and complained about it so much that, it, you know, I, I finally got a, ma a magazine editor to say, Barbara, what you have to do is go out there and try living on these wages yourself. Somebody should do it. I did not mean myself <laughs> as a journalist. But journalists need what jobs they can get and what assignments they could get. Uh, so I had to leave home. I had to find the cheapest accommodations possible. And I was not trying to find low, the lowest wage jobs I could. I was not find, trying to find minimum wage jobs. I had to find, my rule for myself was I had to find the best paying jobs I could, consistent with, with not using my actual resume or, you know, educational experience or anything. Not, though, that I could have cheated very easily because I never did see a help wanted ad for a political essayist. And in particular, I never saw a help wanted ad for a sarcastic feminist political essay. <laughs> what jobs I ended up getting, like waitress and hotel housekeeper, uh, I, that's where I fit in in the labor market. That's what I found. You know, it had been a while since I had worked in any of these kinds of jobs, since I was a teenager. And one of the first things that struck me about being in the low-wage workforce and this has not changed a little bit, and not at all since 2000, is the constant suspicion that if you're willing to work for those wages, you probably have some sort of criminal tendencies. There's something wrong with you, right? First, the drug test. Anybody here ever take a drug test to get a job? Oh, how'd you do? <laughs> Good, no, we'll talk about that later. Um, then there's the personality test. Um, 
most of the questions or you know, I thought, being kind of a smart aleck, I thought that was pretty easy. Like, uh, here's an example, and I wrote this one down, so it's word for word. They, you, you know, you get this in your, in your application process. Quote, in the last year I have stolen, parentheses, check dollar amount below, <laughs> worth of goods from my employers, close quote. You see that, you want to, you know, you really want to be a smart aleck and say, do you have a calculator I could use? Yeah. <laughs> um, or then there was, uh, you know, this question which um, pops up on many companies' tests for their low-wage workers. Agree or disagree, it is easier to work when you're a little bit high. Um, you don't want to overthink that one, you know. It'd be so easy to get philosophical there, but don't do it. So. You know, th that's, that's the preparation. Then you enter into a job paying, at the time I was doing this, I averaged $7 an hour. And these were hard jobs. All the jobs I had, they were physically hard jobs. And I, I would have to say that's one argument for doing this sort of journalism, which is called immersion journalism, where you actually put your body into it. And that is that if you ask people, is your job physically hard? Oh, they'll say, yeah, but most people don't complain a lot. It was another thing to do it myself. I'm strong, I'm fit, but I, there were many, in many jobs where after a shift, my legs would feel like rubber. That I had to find that out. A more important thing I think is that I picked up about how hard these jobs were is something that was completely surprising to me. I'm educated, I've written a lot of books, these jobs were mentally challenging. Every one of them, I had a hard time learning. And it's a humbling kind of discovery. So very important lesson for me here. I never use the word unskilled to describe anybody's job. Every person's job takes intelligence and skill and concentration and deserves our complete respect. You know, that's... Um, now, some of these jobs were also a lot harder than they needed to be because of absurd management rules, like no talking to your fellow employees. You can guess why that is. No drinking water, even in a sweaty job. And then there's a whole bathroom break situation. I was in some of those jobs, the bathroom breaks were so rare. I looked back on the drug test with nostalgia, you know? They don't tell you that could be the last time. There is an academic book that's been written about bathroom breaks in the United States workforce. The title tells it all. It's called Void Where Prohibited. Um, and then an interesting thing, you know, in all these jobs, they suspect you of stealing. Your purse could be searched at any point because you might be stealing, uh, I don't know, ketchup packets from the restaurant or something. However, in, in most of these jobs, it's management that's stealing. Wage theft is a huge problem in America. I could see it going on, but I didn't even have a term for it when I was doing these jobs. One form it can take is, a, well, Walmart just changes the computers, so it doesn't look like you've worked so long so many hours. Another thing is they can tell you to come in a half an hour before the clock starts ticking for your pay and you start working and they're not paying you for that. To me, this is, this is really something, the amounts of this. I pressed the uh, experts on this to come up with an estimate of the amount that is stolen from low-wage workers in America in the form of wage theft. The number they came up with for me was 106 billion dollars a year. 106 billion is on the order of magnitude of some of our larger social programs. Bigger, I think, than unemployment insurance. I had a lot of trouble making ends meet. I had no idea how, how to whack wages and rents were going to be. And obviously, I was looking at the cheapest places to stay in, which included trailer parks, and very often, these places called residential motels that you can get into without one month's rent and deposit or any pay, you pay by the week. 
And I learned a very important uh, thing in these living situations. It's expensive to be poor. If you don't have that one month's rent and security deposit up front, which is going to be more than $1,000, a lot of capital, then you're stuck with outrageous weekly payments. In this, this one residential motel I ended up at, it was $250 a week to stay in an absolute dump that smelled like rodent droppings, and it had no fridge or microwave, meaning that everything I bought to eat had to come from a convenience store, and occasionally as a treat, fast food. So right away, I'm not complaining about the cuisine, it's just right away, that's a lot more expensive than being able to a go to a grocery store. So, you know, the rent, the expenses, I ultimately realized this is not possible. I would have to, I don't know, if I find a lot of roommates or something. And I had advantages, like not having children with me. I tried to get my children to come with me, but <laughs> at a certain point. Um, so, I mean, how you do this sort of thing, if you are, say, suppose I was a single parent with one child trying to do the same thing. Now, sometimes affluent people say to me, why don't these people just learn how to manage their finances a little bit better? And there's a growing movement, a crusade, sort of, to provide financial literacy training for poor people. What bothers me so much about this is that if you're trying to live on the minimum wage, there's only one financial plan for you, and it's called just say no. Don't buy it, uh, don't eat it, don't drink it, don't smoke it, don't fix it if it breaks. Don't go to a doctor in the first place. And you know, I just found out recently doing a due to um, some recent research, who's funding financial literacy education in our public schools? The banks, Wells Fargo, Capital One, the same banks that brought us the mortgage crisis in the middle of the OOs. The banks that have depended on the gullibility and ignorance and trust of consumers all along. We have a lot of full-time workers in this country who don't make enough to live on, if you're talking about living indoors, that is. People who, homeless people who are full-time workers. I met them, I'm sure you know some of them. Even more disturbing to me in some way, hungry workers. That's sort of an image of one in the early OOs before the economic downturn. What I described in the book Nickel and Diamond, if any of you, in case any of you have been forced to read it in school or something, <laughs> is out of date because those were the good old days. Everything you read in there, you have to correct and say, ah, what would this be like today when it's so much harder to find these jobs and when in many ways wages and conditions have deteriorated? What happened in the last four years or so of real of downturn. The number of people in poverty grew to over 15.5% of Americans. And a large part of this increase, I can't tell you how much, I wish I knew, is not people who were poor necessarily in the long term, or people whose parents were also poor, but people who had higher educations, who have higher, you know, who have degrees, uh, people who were lawyers, IT experts, college graduates of all kinds. These are not the kind of people that that stereotype I talked about at the beginning can apply to. These are not the people who have the bad lifestyles, so, so called. They got poor, you know, because they didn't have money. In fact, that's become a, a sort of a, a major kind of theoretical breakthrough of mine. The cause of poverty may not be character failings, may not even be lack of education, may not be bad habits, that the real, real core of poverty is a shortage of money. That's it, you know, it's a theoretical breakthrough. I'm trying to push it. Generally, when we talk about doing something about poverty, we talk about things that need to be done. Affordable housing, subsidized childcare, you know, all those sorts of things. We talk about budgets, programs, 
This afternoon I went to a fascinating meeting put together by HomeWise, uh, the housing organization in Santa Fe, to talk about just this kind of thing. How do we build programs and make them work effectively to help people move up? The sad truth in this country now, though, is instead of helping the down and out, we have a society that seems to persecute the poor so that if you start sliding downhill, you're likely to accelerate all the way into destitution or even further. And there is another step, and that's incarceration. This is something that has accelerated and increased since the middle of the OOs. And I'll tell you why I think that is, this sort of persecution of the poor. Both government and corporations play a role in this. First of all, an open, you know, a, a number of employers openly discriminate against hiring unemployed people. I mean, this is so, it's, I found it's funny to say that. They don't want to hire unemployed people. <laughs> They want to hire people who already have jobs. Why is that? Because the same stereotypes that apply to the poor apply to the unemployed. They must be losers, so don't hire them. In fact, there are states now that have been trying to pass laws uh, so that you can't have health wanted ads that say, for example, no unemployed candidates will be considered at all, close quote. More and more employers and I've got seen numbers that go up to 70%, now do a credit check on people who apply for a job. I mean, it's nothing to do with your ability to perform the job. But right there, the people who most desperately need employment are weeded out. And if you've been relying on credit cards to get through these things, you know, the, the poor face higher interest rates. They don't get regular credit cards, they get subprime credit cards. I won't even talk about payday lenders because there's such astronomical amounts of interest. And if you think you could get rid of any of these bills by filing for bankruptcy, I was shocked to find that the average cost of filing for bankruptcy in America is $2,000. And where are you going to get the $2,000 just to become bankrupt? Do we need a special program for that? <laughs> bankruptcy assistance? You're listening to a tribute to Barbara Ehrenreich. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Now, here's the most sinister thing to me, though. And a lot of this is, is, this is research I've done and reporting I've done, but also because I work now with a group called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which I am proud to say I launched, but we get starving journalists who are pretty easy to find to do really good research on these sorts of issues. The most sinister thing, it seems to me, is the ways in which government contributes its own harassment of the poor. 10 million people are charged each year in this country with misdemeanors. Many of these are very minor misdemeanors. I'll, me I'll mention some of them. But they still lead to fines and even jail time. 75% of the people charged with misdemeanors, this is kind of interesting, are indigent. And the average fine for a misdemeanor is in the range of $200 to $500. You're already poor, right? You've got a low-wage job. In New York, it is illegal to put your feet up on a subway seat that is empty. The whole subway car can be empty. It can be 3 in the morning. You're returning from your dishwashing job. You put your feet up, and a cop comes in. You are not warned. You are not reprimanded. You don't receive a citation. You are arrested. You're right then taken off the subway train and into a police station, and so you, you know, the next thing is, you know, you're going to be charged, you're going to have court costs, because now the defendant is charged with all the court costs, or increasingly with the court costs. In Washington, D.C., uh, you can be arrested, not just warned, 
or given a citation for driving with an expired license. Uh, and, and, and so you can see how this grows. Uh, the example I like to give is if you're driving with a broken headlight, it could cost $150 maybe to get a new one put in. You don't have $150, you've got to get to work or from work or whatever. And you get stopped for that. You get fined $200. Well, if you had that money, you would have fixed the headlight, right? So you can't pay that. Then the court is going to issue a summons at some point. The summons is going to be turned over to a collection agent, which may not bother even getting your correct address. The, you know, most people who are issued summonses don't show up and say they never got the summons. That's called failure to appear. Now you're in real trouble. Now there's a warrant out for your arrest, and the likelihood is you have no idea about that. Another thing that uh, is in, the, in the, the public sector realm is a growing number of cities have taken to ticketing and sometimes handcuffing children found on the streets during school hours. In Los Angeles, the fine for truancy is $250. In Dallas, it can be as high as um, $500, crushing amounts for people who don't have much money. In New Mexico, upon, when there's a second conviction uh, for a child's truancy, a parent may face a fine of not more than $500 or imprisonment for up to six months. Now, we want children to go to school, right? But in LA, some community groups studied the situation because, you know, peop actually, people were getting afraid to send their children to school in case they were a little bit late and got caught in the street and these fines started piling up on the family. So the community organizations found out that 80% of the so-called truants were simply late for school because a city bus was too full and whizzed right by their school bus stop so they couldn't get to school on time. I, I know sometimes it sounds good, let's, you know, let's really get those kids in school, let's get the parent, make the parents responsible. This has become an additional way of criminalizing the poor. It is not the kids in Beverly Hills whose families are getting tickets for this. This sort of police harassment has increased since the recession started, as far as anybody can tell me, because it looks like it's a way for municipalities and counties to raise their revenues. They're really pressed for revenues, so they said, let's have more infractions. Let's have higher fines. Let's charge our court costs. What happens if you don't pay a fine? Well, you may go to jail. There's a case I found pretty fascinating about a South Carolina woman who was um, trying to make a living, you know, post losing her business uh, in the recession by selling plasma, her own blood, and also scrap metal. Uh, she was charged with having a, quote, messy yard. Who knew that was a crime? Fined $480. Of course she didn't have $480. So she, has, she was jailed for six days until there was a community protest to get her out. It's um, very easy to get in deep trouble. The story that I, I find most amazing is, uh, from, comes from Michigan. It's of a woman, I should mention, this is, this is actually a white woman, if this story sounds like, like, if it sounds like all oh, this is racial profiling, it is not, always. A homeless woman, a full-time worker, was arrested, you know, as a homeless person. When they got her, they found she had an even worse thing on her record than being homeless, and that is her 16-year-old son was in jail, and she was not keeping up with his room and board charges. So she was jailed because of that. So you have that two family members caught in this situation. Fortunately, the ACLU intervened in her case. You know, one of the things that's proliferated since the economic downturn is laws that for outlaw, essentially, homelessness. A good example would be, um, a particularly evil one would be from Sarasota, Florida, 
which passed an ordinance that it is illegal there to be asleep outdoors and, quote, when awakened, state that he or she has no other place to live, close quote. In other words, if you're sleeping in the park and a police officer comes over and, says, and shakes you awake and you say, oh, you know, I just didn't feel like staying in my penthouse condo tonight. I really needed a change. Fine, that's legal. But if you wake and you say, oh, I've got nowhere to go, that is a crime. Now think about that. There are no laws, of course, that require cities to provide food, shelter, or restrooms for their indigent citizens. Restrooms, big issue. Public urination is a crime almost everywhere. But is anybody going to help you to do it unpublicly? If you don't have the money or the skin color or whatever it takes to walk into a restaurant and sort of just use the facilities? I think the worst part of this is that in some cities such as Orlando, it is even illegal to help the poor. There are laws forbidding the sharing of food with indigent people in public places. Uh, and there's a great group, Food Not Bombs. You might have heard of them. You know, I'm like, hey, um, you know, they, they like to get in those parks and, and serve vegan food to homeless people. And I, I don't hold the vegan part against them, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's great. But very sweet, nice, middle-class people have spent time in jail for that crime. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that is like outlawing Christianity or outlawing ethics or something. You know, and how do they define indigent? Well, I don't know how the well, definition exactly in Orlando, but Las Vegas had a great definition of indigent. And that's the, that was that an indigent person is someone whom a reasonable person would consider to be eligible for public assistance or able to apply for public assistance. Now, that could have been, that could be me in my everyday work outfit, you know, at home as a freelance writer. But that's the, the depth of prejudice there, you know, is incomprehensible. So we have a pattern in this country. We have been defunding services that might help the poor while ramping up various forms of harassment of the poor, including a law enforcement. So you starve school budgets, for example. You cut all the fun things like art and drama and everything, then make truancy illegal. You um, cut public transportation budgets and make it lateness to school illegal. You shut down public housing and then make it a crime to be homeless. Now, it's clear, you know, the positive kinds of things we need to do in this country. You know, we need affordable housing. We uh, need to raise the minimum wage everywhere. And that's where, you know, you, in Santa Fe, you have to go out there and be the missionaries around the country so you can raise the minimum wage and have a better, stronger community. Uh, you could cut, you know, executive compensation at the top of the corporate hierarchy if you just want to keep things in line. You know, it, it's, it's amazing how some of the, the same economic conservatives who will say, no, we cannot raise the minimum wage, say, well, how about controlling executive compensation? Oh, no, don't do that either. Why not? Why not bring that down? What about some sick days for this country? Nearly half of America's private sector workers have no guaranteed paid, no guaranteed sick days, and can face firing for staying home with a sick child. You know, I could go on and on and on with things that need to be done. I'll mention this since there are college students in the audience. You know, this, this isn't working, this uh, higher education business. It is not working anymore. You have no guarantee of a job when you get out. You, what you have is a guarantee of a huge debt. And an awful lot of poor students are trying to get through college now while working full time. 
which is not possible. No one should have to go through this. No one should graduate with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. In fact, I'm for an immediate <laughs> debt jubilee, debt jubilee for all that, those student loans. But, you know, I'm not pushing a uh, positive agenda here. We all know what it is. My sort of short-term demand is much more modest. Could we just stop the meanness? Could we stop the relentless persecution of people who are already having a hard time? Could we stop the wage theft by employers? Could we stop treating low-wage workers as criminals? Give them some rights in the workplace so they could even organize into unions if they want to. Stop penalizing people for their credit scores. Since when is a credit score is a measure of a person's worth? Could we stop harassing the homeless and the indigent? You know, in a sense, to be homeless, to be indigent in America, you have entered the ranks, the ranks of a population very little different from undocumented workers. It's like you're not a citizen anymore. It's like you have no rights at all here. In other words, could we stop kicking people when they're down? That's my program. Not my whole one, but I don't think this is about, you know, any sort of like, you know, whether you're a liberal or a conservative or what's your religious orientation or anything. I think these are moral issues how we treat the people who are in need is a moral issue. You know, I tell, when I speak to religious audiences, and I sometimes do, you know, if you're looking for some kind of biblical backup, you know, you're not gonna find a lot on abortion in the Bible. You're not gonna find anything on gay marriage in the Bible. You're not gonna find a word about stem cell research in the Bible. But you will find 3,000 references to the moral claim that people who are hurting, chiefly because of poverty, have on the rest of us. And I think it is time to start acting on that moral imperative and maybe even get to the point where we move on from stop kicking people when they're down to the point where we're actually constantly reaching out a hand. Thank you. After Barbara Ehrenreich's presentation, I had a chance to talk with her. How has the decline in the union movement affected this issue of wages and poverty? Oh, well, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster. The unions you know, have been pushing for raising the minimum wage. So that's a good thing. I fault them for spending the last five or so years without doing a huge effort to organize the unemployed. Just so many people have lost their jobs in this country in waves. You know, I've met, I've met with mill workers in Maine and foundry workers in Indiana. And when you lose your job, you lose your union membership. No. That's exactly where the union should be in, fighting for you harder than ever. <laughs> I am quite critical of, them, of our major unions. I mean, I, and I'll say something which may get me in a lot of trouble back in D.C., but I think they have to sell off their real estate. Who's visited Washington, D.C., and seen the beautiful buildings that the Teamsters, the AFL-CIO, Etc. even the SEIU occupy. I think all that has to go. It's probably worth hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, and all that has to be turned over into grassroots organizing. Really, that's the only thing to do uh, with that. Well, union membership is now at a, almost a 100-year low, and there's been mm -hmm. concerted attacks and well-documented in uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan to take away collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. But t talk, about, talk about their endorsement of uh, Keystone XL, the pipeline project from, that would bring tar sands Well, they didn't come right out and endorse the Keystone pipeline. 
right? They, they just said there's a lot of good stuff about pipelines, right? I found very shocking about that in a statement from the AFL-CIO, but at the same time they're saying, we the unions have to be sort of the, a nexus of democratic forces in this country. And they included, you know, civil rights, women, et cetera. And they suddenly dropped the environmental movement. What was that with that? I spent a lot of time backing union organizing drives, walking picket lines, and I, right now, I, I always try to remind workers, they have the option of forming their own associations. You do not have to be part of any sort of national or international labor movement, union, uh, to be organized. The flight, like the American Airlines flight attendants, they're not part of the AFL-CIO. They have their own association. The clerical workers at um, the University of California, at least in Berkeley, own association. That's another way we have to think of that people can go. Uh, the economist Richard Wolff on this stage uh, talked about the systemic and structural problems of capitalism uh, that need to be addressed rather than uh, this or that particular uh, problem. Uh, what do you think about that? I tend to think smaller. I tend to think of, uh, you know, in, in my actual work, yes. I agree with Richard Wolf, I agree. <laughs> obviously. We have to break things down into the size we can deal with. In Santa Fe, six, seven years ago when the living wage movement started, they could have said, well, obviously we have to smash capitalism. That's what's wrong here, right? Some people getting rich off of other people. Right, that would be true at some level. But they also carved out an attack. Now, if you want to call that reformism, then we have a fight, David, and I was hoping we'd have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I was reminded of this uh, Yeats uh, couplet when you were talking about uh, meanness and kind of the hardening of the emotional arteries uh, in, the, in the body politic. He said, uh, we have fed the heart on fantasies. The heart has grown brutal on the fair. How do we stop that meanness? Well, you see, it's not meanness in us each individually. I think very few of us have an impulse when we see a panhandler to hit the person or something or call the police. But it, it becomes systematic. You know, when your municipality is so starved for finances that they think that's actually a good way to make money by laying more fines and fees on top of the poorest people, that then it becomes organized. And then we can do something. You know, there are things, a lot of that is in, within reach of city ordinances, you know, of people. You want children handcuffed on the streets for being late to school? You've got a choice. You know, you can vote on that and go to city council on that. And so you have to, you know, but it means looking at all those places where the gears are turning in that kind of direction and intervening. But what does it say about the economic system when there's obviously so much work to be done, so much infrastructure that needs to be built and repaired and restored on one side, and on the other side you have all of these people out of work that are looking for work, but this system can't bring them together? Are you, you're indicting capitalism again. <laughs> <laughs> again. Again, yeah. No, sure. I mean, it's like, is there any shortage of things to do in this country? And it's not just physical infrastructure. It's also what you could call human or social infrastructure. The baby boomers, more and more, uh, are going to need home health care aids. Just to give one example. They're gonna, you, you need, if you're not all going to be in nursing homes, we're going to need that kind of service. Right now, home health care aides are treated terribly. They're paid near the minimum wage everywhere. They have, you know, they have no, they have no more rights than the average domestic worker. We're not, we're not putting a, the need together with the ability to do something about that. We have so many children, they need tutoring, they need help with school, they need, they need smaller classrooms. And then we have all these unemployed teachers. An economy like that has to be changed. Your views on women in combat? 
fine. But I, you know, the, the point is that ever since the introduction of action at a distance weapons, like bows and arrows, strength, upper body strength, has not been the determining thing in the inability to fight. That's nonsense. Now, the other thing is when you're using action at the distance weapons, and our most common one for the last few hundred years has been guns. You don't want to be in some kind of testosterone range, rage, when you're taking aim. Rage and the, the total sort of testosterone story of war, silly. Where you got to be now is, you know, unless you're, unless you're fighting, you know, hand to hand and wrestling or something. So, you know, women, we can do it too. And anybody who, any guy here who questions that and thinks that women aren't capable of being really Aggressive, I'll meet you outside. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you were just listening to a tribute to Barbara Ehrenreich. She was a noted social critic, author, feminist, and journalist. She passed away in September 2022. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Nancy Frazier, Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Arundhati Roy. And we have a series of programs with Barbara Ehrenreich. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, a tribute to Barbara Ehrenreich, and for her classic book, Nickel and Dimed, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Dot O-R-G. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are available at no charge. Just call us at 1 800 444 Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Natalie Merchant. Which side are you on? Come all you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on?
is KBOO Portland, volunteer-powered community radio. Hit it. You know, it's crazy, like, you know, Ted Canfone started in prison, you know, and when we came home, they kept, like, our first interviews and all of our first content in bondage. We had to start over, you know what I'm saying? We lost our mind and we lost Joe, but we gained blue. Ted Canfone. Did that time and I bounce back. Had us in the beanies, now snap back. Boys in blue, trying to snap back. Trying to make sure that my guys never go back. Ain't worried about the instants in the Snapchat. I'm worried about the homies on just close to relax. Messed up when you know the dealer and the buyer. Look him in his eyes, I can tell if he lying. Been locked up with gorillas in the lines. Yeah, respect it, get you far and don't move around blind. Forget about the child hall, ain't waiting in line. Bust down on the bed, spread with the homies. Not no more, we on the streets waiting for him. Free such and such, free with you out. We all on cable talking it out. Me, Mike, and Blue in a couple of guests. Puppet Knowledge like petrol, who got the gas? Doing the work, trying to hear from my past. Politicking on the yard, trying to touch me a bag. Mike was on the yard with the hitters in the sack.